Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hi, everybody. It's Doc from the John Freaking Pod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. The world is a book, and those who do not travel read only one page. Augustine of Hippo The scheduled visit had been canceled yesterday because the seas had been too rough. Today hadn't been much better, but the trip had proceeded anyway. Now, after a 40-minute boat ride across a stretch of the North Sea, Gaz had to coordinate stepping off the boat onto a swaying swing that had been lowered from above, all while the restless sea rocked and rolled beneath him. Once he was perched precariously on the swing, he had been hauled up to the platform 40 feet above, and he was now face-to-face with the country's Director of Homeland Security, Mike. What had Gaz gotten himself into? I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Mirpod.
Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place, for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Welcome back to another episode of the John Freaking Muir Pod. Well, this week's episode is going to be a fun one. Here we are for episode 29, and I want you to remember all the way back to episode 24, when I had everyone's favorite globe-trotting Northern Irishman, Johnny Blair, on the pod. On that episode, he recommended that I reach out to one of his friends, Rick Gazarian, also known as Global Gaz, and try and get him to come on the show and share some of his stories. Well, I did just that, and guess what? We've got Global Gaz on the show this week. Rick Gazarian is the host of the Counting Countries podcast. He's also written three books, created and starred in two films, and has visited 142 countries. And I know he's trying to get to all 193 recognized countries by the, uh, recognized by the United Nations. He has a unique backstory and quite a few adventures to share. Welcome to the pod, Rick. Or, or is it Gaz or, or is it Global Gaz? Help me out here. Well, let's go with Gaz, Doc. How's that sound? Okay, Gaz. Fantastic. Now, you're actually calling in. We are, we are communicating right now. You're in Bangkok. And I'm on the West Coast of the United States, so there is a 14-hour time difference between us. So it's, uh, it's getting to be a little bit late in the evening for me, and, and I think it's, it's early tomorrow morning for you. That is correct. I'm getting my day started, and you are my second Zoom of the day already, so I'm off to a productive start. Excellent. Now, I checked out the analytics on Anchor, the, the platform that I use to host my podcast, and I noticed that I had a, a new country listening in, and that country was Thailand. So I, I can only imagine that you, you are my one listener, my lone listener in Thailand. So thank I was you for- doing my, I was doing my research yesterday, Doc, to get prepared. Nice. Thanks for, thanks for uh, bringing up our country count to 34 countries now. So all no right. No worries. Hey, I want to give you a heads up on a feature we have on the pod, and that is, it's called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And what it is, is as we get to the end of the episode today, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to ask you to share your Pro Tip Insight of the Week to, uh, to our listeners out there. And really, this is, this is not something you can plan for. It just kind of springs from the free flow of conversation uh, during the episode. And it's just a tidbit or a maxim or a philosophy that, that you have that our listeners can can learn from and benefit from. Sounds good to me. Okay. So don't be surprised. All right. So uh, I want to talk to you about a a number of things, but uh, first of all, 
you know, you've been to 142 countries. How, how old were you and how did it happen that you caught the travel bug? Yeah, there were a lot of stutter steps in my journey to uh, extreme travel. Um, so, you know, I went on a couple of international trips growing up with my parents. I lived in Hong Kong for four months after graduation. Um, I did a big trip in 2004 for about eight months between jobs. But I'd really say it really started in 2009. I'd worked in the financial services industry for a long time. I got laid off during the Great uh, Recession of 08. They gave me a package. And uh, in 2009, I started off on an 11-month trip around the world. And during that time point, I realized I was frustrated or tired or I just had enough and I'm like, I know I need to reinvent myself, make travel more or a bigger part of my life, but I knew I didn't want to go back to a traditional nine to five job. That's very similar to the story we heard from Chris Brinley Jr. a few weeks back. Uh, he was an advertising exec at a company uh, advertising firm in Los Angeles, and he was sitting in his cubicle one day and heard a voice that told him to go backpacking, even though he had never been backpacking before. Mm. And uh, he he, follow, he he listened, he followed that, and his life has changed forever. So it's interesting how, how we are drawn in, in different directions, and if we listen to that inner, inner voice that can take us uh, to places we never dreamed of. That, that, yeah, I mean, that's the incredible opportunity, uh, dream, which you can make a reality if, you know, you put your mind to it. Now, you said that your parents took you uh, to some places when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, my, my parents loved travel. Um, and I was lucky, you know, we did, you know, whether it was a trip to Cape Cod outside of Boston, a trip to Florida, I mean, we went to a couple of islands in the Caribbean, but we had really good family friends who were originally from the Philippines. And what happened when, you know, one thing led to another and twice, uh, once in junior high, once in high school, I ended up in Asia visiting this family in the Philippines and also got to add on Japan and Hong Kong. And, you know, as a 13 and 16 year old, um, you know, who didn't do, you know, a lot of international travel. I mean, this was, this was pretty eye-opening getting that opportunity to travel over there growing up. Mm -hmm. And you've been in Bangkok for a number of years now. How did, how did that come to be? Yeah. So um, after I got laid off and then I did my big epic uh, trip around the globe in 09, um, I then started a couple of businesses in the U.S., but, you know, I'm working out of my home um, I was living in Chicago, as you know, Doc, the winters there are not great. I was freezing in my condo in January, and I had recently read this book called The Gospel of Father Joe, a true account of an American priest that moves to Bangkok in the 1970s and moves into the slums. And this is like, you know, living in a shack above an open sewer and he wasn't, I mean, he, he wasn't there trying to convert people, but he was there supporting people. I mean, these people had really such few resources, were really poverty stricken. And for the last 50 years, he has had this massive outreach program 
to thousands of ties. And I said to myself, I'm like, what am I doing here? I don't need to be here. And I contacted them and I said, I'm coming to Thailand and I want to volunteer. Nice. And are you still, are you still working with him? Um, unfortunately my travel schedule did get in the way. So I've been to visit, I, I ended up volunteering at two different schools and teaching English to kindergarten kids. Mm-hmm. So uh, unfortunately I'm not teaching there on a regular basis, but I've been back uh, to visit a couple of times. Now I said you were living in Thailand, but that's really, that's really not an accurate statement. You're not there 365 days a year. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a, a little bit of a misnomer um, because my lifestyle is somewhat nomadic um, and this year being the exception due to COVID. But the previous uh, five years going back, it works out to be about 90 days in Bangkok, 60 days in Boston where I grew up, 30 days in Chicago where I still have a home, and then six months of traveling on the road. Okay, so an important question here, Gaz. Patriots? Or Bears? It's an easy decision, Doc. It's still the Patriots, but if someone has to come in second, I'll go with the Bears. Okay. Very good. Very good. What, what was your reaction to Brady going to uh, Tampa Bay? You know, it, it seemed like it was in the stars. It was definitely heartbreaking. You know, as a Bostonian, you want to see him play it out in New England, retire in New England, but, you know, there just seemed uh, between Kraft and Belichick and Brady, I guess the, the dream couldn't go on forever. So wish him a ton of luck in Tampa Bay, but still hope the Pats beat him. Yeah, the, the Trinity uh, seemed to grow a little bit uneasy over the last few seasons. And uh, like you said, it seemed to be, you know, predestined that it wasn't going to work out that way. Yeah, frustrating. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to jump back just a little bit because I'm going to go back to that epic trip where you took 11 months and traveled the globe. Uh, how, um, how epic was that trip? Where, how far afield did you, did you get on that in, in those 11 months? I, I mean, it was a pretty extensive trip. I, I can't remember offhand. Let's say it was, you know, 25 plus countries. And I started in January of 09. And I started off in South Korea and I kind of said to myself at this point, I go, oh, I've done a couple of extensive trips before, but I'm in the, my goal here is to go to all new countries. And I said to myself, I might as well at some point go to every country in the world. And I didn't really think much beyond that. I didn't research it. I don't even think I knew how many countries there were in the world, but as I created my itinerary, my agenda, I just started going west from South Korea and just picking new countries that I had not been to before. And, you know, I, this was great in the fact that it pushed me to go to places that people typically traditionally are not going to be visiting uh, on their vacation. So a great example would be the Middle East, where I really... I covered a lot of ground. I mean, I went to uh, Egypt, Lebanon, Israel, uh, Jordan, UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, uh, Oman. And then I had this big Lonely Planet book in the Middle East, and they have a bunch of pictures, which are the highlights of of each country. And you keep on reading this book, and it's dangerous because the more you read, the more you want to travel. 
and I kept on seeing these great pictures from Syria and Yemen. Um, and I'm like, I'm in the Middle East. These are typically not seen as the safest of countries, but how can I not go to these two amazing countries while I'm here in the Middle East? So I ended up adding on those country, two countries as well, which were not on my original agenda when I created it uh, before I left my trip. Now this is a this is a pod, podcast and so it's audio only. But um, I'm watching you as we are communicating via computer here, and I see you rattle off these countries, and it, it, it's effortless for you. And I, I can envision you kind of uh, seeing this map in your head. Is that is that kind of accurate? You have this map in your head, and you're just kind of going from point to point to point. You you know exactly where all of these countries are, uh, their size, their shape, and where you've been. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that's a, a pretty accurate appraisal, Doc. So you, you called that quite well. <laughs> Very good. So this quest to count countries, is there, a, is there a, a record out there? Is there a log kept of the people that have visited all 193 countries? Do you have any idea how, how many people in the past have, have been able to accomplish this feat? It seems like a, a pretty daunting task. Yeah, well, I've I've a an excellent mechanism to put this into perspective. Okay, and this is how the beginning of my podcast starts every episode with the uh, voiceover. Um, I, I think pretty surprisingly, shockingly, or at least was for me, more people have been to outer space than people have been to every country. So the number who've been to outer space is about five hundred fifty plus. And the number known of people got been to every country is approximately 200 plus. Wow. And then you divide that number by 7.4 billion. You can see it's a, you know, statistically it's, it's nothing. This is a, a very elite group of people who have accomplished that goal. Yeah. And so how, how many years has it taken you to get to 142? <laughs> um well i mean technically you probably can say you know since i was 13 because maybe that was my first international trip but in earnest i mean for me it's kind of i, I look at 2009 when i said okay i'm going to travel to every country in the world so um that's you know 11 years of pretty constant diligent travel in terms of, of meeting that goal. Okay. And in those 11 years, how many countries of the 142 did you hit? Um, you, visited yeah, a few, you visited a few when you were a kid, but you know, how many in those 11 years? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd actually done a couple of pretty good trips before 09 as well. So I'm going to say I did 90 of those countries since 2009. Okay. So about eight countries a year is the average. Yeah, it's definitely the average, but it's, you know, some years it's uh, 20 countries, 20 new countries. And, you know, after 09, the, I, I actually wasn't doing that much travel for the next several years. So 09 and then 2012, I kind of picked things up again, travel wise. So 2010, 2011, it might have only been a couple of countries a year uh, during that time period. 
Okay. So I'm just trying to extrapolate out how uh, forecast, how many more years is this going to take for you? For you? You've got well, 51 countries left. Have you set yourself up in nice position where they're all in a row or all clustered uh, near each other? Or are you going to have to do some serious globe hopping? Well, doc, if we had this conversation in December, I would have told you my goal was I was going to be doing 53 countries in three years. Uh, I started off with the 2020 at 140 and I had planned out 20 new countries for 2020. I got to two of those 20 and in mid-March, I left uh, Western Africa and came back to Thailand to self-shelter. And as we all know the story, uh, it's now mid-August and I'm still in Thailand. So, uh, you know, who, I, I mean, everything has to be reset. No one knows what the future is going to hold in terms of travel. So it, it would have been three years, but we'll have to talk again in another year to see how this is all going to play forward. That's right. They say that uh, man plans and God laughs. Mm. That will definitely be the case now in our new uh, COVID environment. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about Global Gas, your travel blog. How long have you kept that up? I started that in 2014. And I started reading a bunch of blogs probably around 2010. And I, I guess I was a little naive. I didn't even realize there was a world of travel blogs before that, but I was planning a trip and then I started seeing all these great travel blogs, all these great, all this great content. And I said to myself, Oh, um, you know, I have a bunch of good travel stories. You know, I should be doing this, but there was so much procrastination. So it was a, it, it took another four years until I finally got around to creating my own travel blog. Let's talk about our, our, one of our, our common friends, our favorite uh, Northern Irish travel blogger, Johnny Blair. Whose travel blog came first? Was it don'tstopliving.net or was it Global Gas? Uh, de definitely him. I mean, he's, he's definitely a veteran travel blogger. So he was, I don't know how many years ahead of, ahead of me he was, but no contest. And how, how did you two cross paths? Well, you know, Johnny is in my category of a person I would call a friend, but he's in that category of a friend who I've never actually met in real life. Uh -huh. um, so the reality is, it doesn't matter what hobby it is. It could be, uh, you know, bird spotting, stamp collecting, NASCAR, you know, you end up congregating with your tribe. And obviously, that is so much easier with the internet, with social media. Um, so I don't remember exactly what our first interaction was online, but, you know, we were both aware of each other and, um, I did invite him onto my podcast. So that's when I got my first real extensive communications with him during my interview, but we email on a semi periodic basic ba uh, basis and check in and get some advice from each other. So it's that type of friendship. Nice. Nice. So um, on your travel blog, Global Gas, uh, I took a spin through it the other day and it, it's got a lot of impressive features on it. I, I really appreciated your gear list. I mean, you, you went through and kind of detailed out, you know, what, you, what your recommended gear, your travel gear is. 
Yep, I, I put together two pages somewhat recently. One is a resource page of like, you know, what websites or apps I turn to. And then the other one is my gear page. Um, you know, I'm not, I wish I could say I was this awesome light packer. Um, that's not the case. I have one duffel bag on a roller I bring, which has, you know, basically my clothes. And then I have a backpack, which is really stuffed in with a ton of cameras and electronic gears and is very heavy. And I usually complain about how heavy it is as I'm <laughs> carrying it around and dragging my other bag. And what, uh, what is your typical trip like? I mean, are you, where do you stay? How long are you there? Uh, how much in advance do you plan? What, what does it look like for, for Gaz when he's, when he's getting ready to go on a trip and when he actually takes the trip? Yeah, I, I think the reality for me is there is no standard trip. Um, so, you know, some trips to a country might be two nights, and then the country right after that might be two and a half weeks. Um, you know, some countries I'm staying in a sucky guest house at 20 bucks a night, and then I'm fortunate enough to be in a five-star hotel a week later. So it really runs the gamut and it's so dependent on the trip and the country and the time frame. So there's so many variables going into that. Okay. And how do you, how do you fund your adventures? Yeah, twofold. So I have two careers, so to speak. One is the travel business, which we're discussing. And then the other business is something I started after I got laid off, which is, um, real estate investing in Chicago. So the reality is the real estate pays for the majority of my travels. The blog does make me some income. It's not a lot, but the other benefit of the blog is collaborations or partnerships. So for instance, last year I was working with two companies, uh, G Adventures, a giant tour provider out of Toronto that operates like in you know, a hundred different countries. They sponsored me, they sent me to Japan, and then they sent me to Uganda and Rwanda. So G Adventures, great company, great com uh, commitment to the local community and giving back. The second company I worked with is Untamed Borders. Untamed Borders specializes in countries that are more challenging. So if you're visiting Yemen or Syria, or South Sudan, Untamed Borders is a great option. Uh, I went to Afghanistan with them last year. So these partnerships are a great symbiotic relationship. I help promote them, market them, and in return, I get a trip at no cost for myself. So what does Untamed Borders get for sending uh, gas out to Afghanistan? What... what, what uh... <laughs> What's their part of the deal? In my opinion, they got a lot. And hopefully, uh, James, uh, one of the co-founders, is happy with our relationship. Um, so for starters, for Afghanistan, for the trip there, for in regards to my podcast, they got six commercials and six mini interviews. So my podcast comes out monthly. So that was basically 12 months of me promoting their content on my podcast. 
Then in addition, I wrote five blog posts, I believe, on Afghanistan. And then uh, to tie that all in together, I did a ton of promotion on my three channels for social media, Instagram, Facebook, and a ton of Twitter. Okay. So, what, yeah. What, what kind of country, well, country, what kind of company is Untamed Borders? What are they, what are they promoting? Um, well, I would, I would kind of put them as a uh, boutique travel company or niche travel company. Um, so again, they're arranging tours in these mostly uh, viewed as countries which are challenging to visit. Right. The Got Yemens, it. the Syrias. Got it. Okay. Hey, back to your travel blog. Um, I also found an interesting section on there where you had a book for every single one of the 193 countries, something that tied into each one of those countries, which I thought was amazing. Have you read all of those books? Okay, so I need to put the caveat. It's a work in progress, meaning okay. uh, I have not finished this secondary quest. Uh, yeah, so there's a, my goal is to have at least one book for every of the 193 countries. I haven't counted it up. I, I'm sure there's at least 100 books on that list at that point, uh, at this point. And I have read every one of those books on the list or at least most of the books. So there's a couple books which were not that interesting or got a little uh, tedious, which I did not finish, but I'll, I'll say that I've read all those books. Okay. So can I just name a couple of countries and you can tell me what books uh, you have on the list? Am I uh, how, how, good's the, how good's the memory? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's find out. All right. Uh, Chile. Chile, I can't remember the name exactly, but I think it's like a long, skinny account, something like that long. Um, and I think it's a British woman who goes to Chile, and it's basically a travel log of her journey and times uh, exploring Chile. Okay. Uh, Thailand. Thailand. And again, I'm not going to remember the title. It's an American guy who I believe has passed away, who moved to Thailand. Uh, oh, Jas Jasmine Fever. Um, and it's basically each chapter is this amazing, funny, interesting story of living in Thailand and, you know, kind of the crazy experiences he had over time. Okay. Now, this is, here's a tough one. I, I didn't know that. I don't know if there's any uh, I'm going to say mainstream books written about uh, some of these smaller countries. What about uh, Burundi? Um, I haven't read that one yet. Okay. I've been to Burundi. I just recently during quarantine found a book on Burundi that looks interesting, which I'll be reading in quarantine and then I'll add it on. Okay. How about Mongolia? Oh, Mongolia um, yeah, it's this, uh, this is, uh, this book I recommend a hundred percent. It's not surprisingly, it's on Genghis Khan, but I mean, the history in his reign, I mean, it's just unbelievably fascinating what he did, what he accomplished. So hundred percent read that book, which I can't remember the name of when you go to Mongolia, it's fascinating. Okay, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna go back to the list and click on that book and make sure I order it. Have you ever read River of Doubt? I do not know that one. 
So that's a story about Teddy Roosevelt and his trip down this river. They did not know the source, you know, where it, where it came from or where it ended up. And it was after his uh, presidential election loss, and he oh. kind of consoled himself with incredible physical feats. And so he decided to uh, to try and, and navigate the river of doubt. Went in and uh, came out the other end. You know, three months later, it was just an amazing story. So I thought maybe it'd be a good good one to to list for maybe Brazil. Uh, okay, so it's in river of doubts in Brazil. Yes, yeah, South America. Okay. Yeah, I actually just read my Brazil book a couple of weeks ago. So I, I did check off that box. Nice. Well, hey, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about some specific stories from Gaz's trips around the world. So stay tuned for that. Be right back. Hey now, I am Rick Gazarian, travel blogger at Global Gaz. And when I'm on the road getting my travel fill, I am checking out John Freakin' Murr's podcast. Check it out. And welcome back. Talking to Global Gaz about uh, some of his trips. We've heard about his past and how he got into the, the travel business, got the travel bug. And I want to talk to you about a few places that you visited. Uh, first of all, I know that Johnny Blair, our friend, uh, this is a place that he has not been able to visit yet. And I know he really wants to because he has, has, is really interested in micronations. And so let's talk a little bit about your trip to the Principality of Sealand. Yeah, um, you know, Johnny is a, a very accomplished traveler, but I do get to bust his balls uh, that I was able to visit Principality of Sealand. And I know that's really, really high on his bucket list. He's not been able to accomplish that. So uh, first of all, Principality of Sealand is located in the North Sea off of England, off the coast of England. And this is one of the most unique places in the world because this country is a former military fortification from World War II. So this plot, it's basically a platform on two tubes built on built in the ocean. And it was built with anti-aircraft weapon to shoot down Nazi planes as it goes down the Thames River. The platform was abandoned after World War II and in the late 1960s, a World War II veteran, uh, Roy Patty Bates, claimed this military fortification as his own independent nation. And they have been an independent nation now for 50 years. And there's a royal family now being led by Prince Michael, the son of Prince uh, Patty Roy Bates, who did pass away. Wow. And did you meet Prince Michael? I have not met Prince Michael. I did get the opportunity to interview him for my podcast, but I met his two sons, Prince Liam and Prince James, when I was personally fortunate enough to visit the Principality of Sealand. Now, how, how did you get there? And I, 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 
doesn't have an airport, right? It's a, it's a platform out in the middle of the ocean. How do you, yep, how do you charter only, a trip there? It's the only country that's accessible by a winch and a swing. So <laughs> take, you know, soak that in for a moment. So <laughs> one of the challenges is it's very difficult to visit because in essence, the Principality of Sealand does not welcome visitors to their country. So what happened is I'm part of this group called ETIC. ETIC is the Extreme Travelers International Congress. And once a year, they have a meeting where we all gather. Previous meetings have been in Baghdad, Mogadishu, and Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. So in other words, the meetings take place in atypical places. Wow. The founder of ETIC, Kolya Spori, started emailing the Principality of Sealand for about two years. And Sealand gets th- probably hundreds of emails every day with one promotion or one idea or one sale. So after uh, a year of emailing or so, he broke through. And the royal family was really intrigued with this group, ETIC. So after a while, they said, you know, we don't welcome visitors to the Principality of Sealand, but your group sounds so unique and so interesting, we would like to host you. So in June of 2019, 25 of us gathered in the port of Harwich. It's on, you know, the east coast of England on the North Sea. Uh, so we met and gathered there. We were met by Prince James and Prince Liam. They had chartered a boat. It takes about uh, 30, 40 minutes uh, into the North Sea. And then you arrive at the Principality of Sealand. And it's the platform's about 40 feet up in the air. So they have a winch, which they hang over the side of the platform. They drop down the swing and the boat has to time it perfectly where the winch and the swing is above the boat. You have to jump onto the seat, the boat pulls away, and then they have to do that 25 times to get each person up onto the platform. And did that go off uh, successfully without a hitch or it sounds problematic in so many ways? Yes and no. So we were supposed to depart Saturday morning. Our trip was canceled. In other words, these are rough seas. The North Sea can be very rough. Yeah. And you don't want to be jumping onto that swing if the waves are two, three, five, you know, 10 feet. So our trip actually got canceled. And they said, you know, we apologize. We'll try again tomorrow. There's no guarantee. Thankfully, the next day, Sunday, the weather uh, was much more agreeable. And we were all able to go back out uh, on our second try. Now, you say it's 40 feet off the water. Um, I see, it, it would seem to me that in rough seas, that I, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. Is it, is it floating? Is it anchored in some way? How, how, is that, uh, how is that structured? Yeah, it's definitely not floating. So there's two long tubes, uh, which the platform attaches to. And then on the other side, uh, the, the tubes go down to the seafloor and they are, uh, you know, I think they're 
it's in you know a massive piece of concrete that was dropped down to the seafloor. So yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's. I mean, at least during my visit, it's extremely stable. It's not moving. It's not shaking or anything like. And so what does, once you're up on the platform, what does Sealand look like? The Principality of Sealand, do you have any good restaurants, you know, a nice library? What are, what are the structures uh, on the platform? Yeah, well, I did, uh, th- there's no cafe. <laughs> I did, uh, in very British fashion, I drank tea with Prince James and Prince Liam, so that was pretty cool. Um, there's a structure on top of the platform with a couple of rooms, the rooms being the kitchen, the living room, an office, and a bathroom. Then the tubes are inhabitable. So you climb down a ladder, and I think like give or take the tubes are like the equivalent of seven stories with the bottom floors of the tube actually technically being underwater. But in the tube that I visited were a couple of bedrooms, a gym, a uh, chapel, uh, some storage area. So I got the full tour of uh, the principality during my visit. What what is the, any idea on the square footage of the platform? How big of an area are we talking? Yeah, um, I don't have it offhand. It's, It's tiny. I mean, it's you know, let's say 150 feet by 40 feet. I mean, okay. rough, rough, but you'll have to go on Wikipedia to, to get the real numbers. All right. And did they stamp your passport? Yeah. So before we left, we filled out the visa application form um, with uh, Prince Liam and Prince James. Uh, we had to pay the visa fee. Uh, and once we got to Principality, we met with uh, Mike who's the director of Homeland Security, who stamped our passports. Mike, the director of Homeland Security. Who you could write a book on Mike, just <laughs> him, never mind the principality. <laughs> and what is, what is the population of Sealand? At least one. <laughs> so... There's two directors of Homeland Securities, and they are two weeks on, two weeks off. So the idea is there's always one person on the uh, the on Sealand. There could be one or two or three other more, but it's basically one at this time. Okay, so the the, the royal family doesn't stay there full time. The royal family does not stay there full time anymore, but speaking with Prince Michael, the son of the founder, um, he, he, at some level, he grew up on Sealand. So he would spend a month or two months at a time by himself as a 17-year-old on Sealand. Interesting. That's, that's quite an upbringing. I mean, it's crazy because there's also a world of difference, meaning 50 years in, Sealand is comfortable, meaning, you know, they've been able to figure out uh, solar-powered and wind-powered generators. Uh, It's completely enclosed. You can actually get a cell phone signal out on the principality. When Prince Michael was there in the late 60s, he would get stranded out there. 
Um, there's no cell phone. He would have some shortwave radio. He would be living on a diet of biscuits and uh, water, which he, uh, you know, which they would desalinate. So mm -hmm. uh, there were windows missing. So you're in winter, it's freezing. So the conditions 45 years ago were pretty harsh and uncomfortable. So he, he made a lot of sacrifice spending and growing up uh, on sea land. Yeah, you said it was a 30 to 40 minute boat ride. So I'm assuming it's probably 10, 12 miles off the coast. Yeah, something, yeah, like that. But again, you would get stranded in the fact that the waters are so rough yeah. that you can't get picked up. Right. And of course, they've got to they've got to haul in all the food, right? And they I mean, probably probably have to make runs to the to the mainland to uh, get provisions and stock up. Uh, it's not it's not like it's uh, either fish or seagull for dinner every night. Yeah, but they would they they would catch fish though. They, so they would go fishing there occasionally to get some get mm -hmm. some food that way. Yeah, these micronations are are fascinating, and I know Johnny is obsessed with them. How many micronations have you been to? Um. Well, I've been to Principality of Sealand. I've been to Christiana in Copenhagen. What other? Um, I don't. I, I, I'm, I mean, I appreciate them. I haven't been to nearly as many as Johnny. Mm -hmm. I've been to some of the countries. They're not, you know, micro nations like Sealand, but I've been to like Abkhazia, Transnistria, Somaliland, Republic of Artsakh. So I've been to those type of countries as well. And you say those type of countries, they're not micro nations, but they're, they're countries that are not recognized by the United Nations. Is that it? Or how yeah, would you categorize I know, those I know, countries? I know, you, I know you discussed these places with Johnny. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I would call them de facto states. So they're countries um, in many, many different ways, but they are not recognized by the international community as being a sovereign nation as recognized by the 193 countries within the United Nations. So something like, you know, Somaliland has a, their own visa, they have their own currency, they have their national anthem, they have their own flag, they have their own de democratically erected, elected government, they have their own military, but no country in the world recognizes them as a sovereign nation. And if you go to the map at the UN, there's no Somaliland, it's just Somalia but Somaliland happens to control, let's say, a third of that nation um, in every respect, but there's no recognition. Yeah, but do they have a national security director named Mike? <laughs> uh, it's Mohammed. <laughs> you've got me, you've got me, I'm, I'm really intrigued by, by Mike. You said that we could spend, spend a whole episode on him. I've got to do some research now. Well, I, I actually have a 10-minute video interview with Mike on my YouTube channel. So he nice. is, he's a unique, uh, a unique character. As soon as we're finished tonight, that's my next stop. Your YouTube channel looking for, for Mike. Check nice. him out. All right. Hey, let's, uh, let's talk about another one of your trips. This, this one to not a micronation, but the, the nation of Japan. And I understand that you have visited Fukushima. Yep. Uh, last summer, last August. So I know, uh, you're speaking a bit about Chernobyl with Johnny. I've mm -hmm. been to Chernobyl. I slept overnight there. A fascinating, incredible place to visit. Um, you know, and it definitely 
got me very interested in this awful disaster. And then during my visit to Japan, I'm like, okay, well, I went to Chernobyl. Let me learn a little bit more about Fukushima during this visit to Japan. So um, there's a couple companies which are doing day trips to Fukushima, and it's a big difference than Chernobyl. As you know, Chernobyl is kind of the self-contained area, the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which you enter and it's sealed off from the rest of the country. Fukushima is very, very different, meaning the tour is taking you into multiple areas around that region, which are not sealed off and which are being lived in by normal Japanese citizens. So um, for instance, I would go to this neighborhood and it was surreal and sad, um, but there would be you know, eight apartment blocks that were literally fenced off and they were completely abandoned, no people living there. There'd be a dosimeter sign outside of the structure um, you know, with the radiation levels and this area had been abandoned. But 200 feet away, there'd be uh, another apartment building and people were able to live in this building. So, you know, Japan throughout the years has been, I think, is it remediation? You know, the process of getting rid of the radiation, of Mm. cleaning, of getting rid of soil. Um, They've been doing this nonstop, but it's obviously multi-year or multi-generation to clean up everything. So some areas there'd be people there or a car driving by and then other areas there'd be, you know, an entire neighborhood, schools abandoned, stores abandoned. Um, so sad, interesting, informative, but also very different than Chernobyl. I, I mean, like for instance, I mean, there was a school that you could walk up to is all chained off, uh, closed, abandoned, but I would look through the windows um, and I think Japanese people at school, they take off their shoes, they put them in their cubbies Mm -hmm. and they switch to slippers in the school. Um, And you would look into this big room through the window and there's just tons of cubbies with children's shoes just left abandoned because I'm guessing the alarm went off and the kids with the teachers just ran out of the school with uh, in their slippers and left their shoes behind. Devastating to think about that. Uh, those kinds of moments. That's uh, that's tough. So how do, how do you, how do you book a trip to go to Fukushima? You said there's two companies that arrange tours. You know, you know. Uh, a, a couple of different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I can you know, I emailed, I mean, there's no complexity to it. Um, you know, you go on the web, you search, um, and you email them and you book the, uh, book the trip. So. And which one was more haunting Chernobyl or Fukushima? Uh, hands down it's Chernobyl. Yeah. Because of the surrounding area, or is it uh, just the kind of the, the woods and, and the, surrounding terrain or the buildings or what, what, uh, what, what was the distinct difference? Yeah. I mean, I definitely encourage people to do the Fukushima 
I mean, it, it's fascinating and you learn a lot and, and you see what happened. But for people who are into dark tourism, it's hard to compete with Chernobyl. I mean, at some level, I mean, that's the granddaddy of dark tourism. And, you know, again, everything is sealed off. So basically everything that you are seeing on your trip to the Chernobyl exclusion zone is gloomy, creepy, abandoned, dilapidated. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty, pretty insane. Tell me about dark tourism. What, uh, what, what, what are the characteristics of dark tourism and what are the hotspots? Um, and I, I do, if, Doc, I want to just jump back one second if it's sure. okay. Yeah. So Japan Wonder Travel is who I went with to Fukushima. So okay. I worked with them. I want to give them a shout out. Uh, okay. So they did a great job. Um, dark tourism is, you, you know, there's all types of tourism. There's people, you know, like you. I like to go trekking. There's another guy that likes to do uh, only beach trips. There's another guy that only does UNESCO World Heritage Sites or another guy that's just a, a foodie, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. one of these um, niches within uh, tourism is dark tourism. And I, I have a little definition I can even read to you. It's visiting places where some of the darkest events of human history have unfolded. That can include genocide, assassination, incarceration, ethnic cleansing, war, or disaster, either natural or accident. So that would be an overview of what that is. Wow. There's a market for that, huh? Yeah. And I mean, as you can see, I mean, it's Chernobyl has blown up. Um, you know, it was popular before and then the miniseries for HBO comes out and it's uh, become quite a thing. But yeah, there's definitely a market for it. And I, I mean, I think you touched upon it with Johnny as well. I mean, examples of this would be Auschwitz. So if you visit Auschwitz um, or you visit um, S21 or the killing fields in Cambodia or the genocide memorials in Rwanda, or the genocide memorials in Minsk. I mean, this is falls under the umbrella of dark tourism. Yeah, I can give you a couple of other examples. I'm, you know, for Eritrea, uh, as one example, Eritrea is an East African country next to Ethiopia, which was in a long war with Ethiopia. So when I was there, I went to the tank cemetery. So outside of the capital are just hundreds or you know a thousand abandoned vehicles some of the military that were just destroyed over the war and you know they're all just thrown in this one area or one other example would be abkhazia that's the de facto nation within the borders of georgia the country in 2008 there was a war between russia and georgia um, the outcome of the war were two de facto independent nations of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. You go to the capital of Abkhazia today, the very large parliament building is completely blown out. It's just a shell of a building, abandoned, destroyed, uh, sitting there empty. So again, these two examples are examples of dark tourism. Got it. Got it. Thank you. 
Now, have you been to all seven continents? Yep. So I've done all seven, correct? Wow. And so tell us about uh, your trip to, we mentioned it earlier, Burundi. That's in Africa? Yeah. So Burundi is a East African country. It is pretty small. It's south of Rwanda. Um, similar to Rwanda, they have the same two ethnic groups, uh, Tutsis and the Hutsis, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and they had some of the same, you know, civil war and, um, you know, genocidal type actions. Um, just Burundi is not as obviously well known as Rwanda, uh, whether it's a popular culture with the movies or uh, the media. But uh, since I'm traveling to all 193 countries, you got to go to every country, whether it's famous or interesting or whatnot. So during a four country trip, Uganda, Rwanda, DRC, and Burundi. I stopped by Burundi for three nights. Um, I didn't have a lot of expectations. I wasn't really even excited about visiting because, you know, you do your research and it's like, okay, I'm going to Uganda. I'm going to see these amazing mountain gorillas. Oh, I'm going to go to, um, you know, Israel, and I'm going to be able to walk around the amazing old walled city of Jerusalem. But when you Google Burundi, you know, no criticism of Burundi, there's not a lot of epic, amazing things that you think you're going to see. But here's the good part is when you go to all these different countries, sometimes you're surprised. And I had one of my best and favorite experiences when I went to Burundi and that is the Royal Drummers of Burundi. It's a group of men that for, and it's passed on. So it's been going on for at least several generations. It's, I went to this private performance, meaning I was the only person there, the only foreigner for this performance. So I go out to this open hillside and I'm sitting there. Then about a hundred local villagers come out and they join me. And then I hear the drums going and 25 drummers come out and perform for me for one hour. And I'm telling you, Doc, I mean, it, this performance blew me away. The showmanship, the rhythm, the enthusiasm, these guys were absolutely fantastic. And I made a giant mistake by not paying for a second hour, which I don't know why I didn't do. <laughs> wow. That, that sounds incredible. It's one of those, one of those moments that you had no idea was coming and uh, didn't know what to expect and boom, there it is. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I knew I was going to see some drummers, but beyond that, you know, because everything is knowable, almost, right? You can Google anything, but I didn't have any idea what I was about to see. And it was just awesome. Wow. And so you were there for three nights. Where did, where did you stay and what did you eat? Um, I stayed in what I thought was the capital, capital, but I think it was month or even two months before I got there, they'd moved the capital, which I found out when I got there. Um, so I stayed in the former capital for three nights um, on the lake, 
there's a uh, big lake in Burundi. So I stayed there. That was my home base. Um, through a friend in the travel community, Hi Anya, I got the contact of a guide in Burundi. And I basically hung out with him for three days as he took me around the country. Nice. Nice. And what, what, uh, what were the, what, what's a typical meal in Burundi? Um, I'm, I'm the bad guy to ask doc. I'm a very picky eater. <laughs> um, so there was a restaurant at the hotel on the roof and I went up there and ate. I, I probably, I think I ate some grilled chicken. So nothing I didn't, I mean, but in general, I mean, East Africa is not really, you know, I think known for its cuisine per se. Um, so I, I didn't really partake in the, the the local delicacies there. Got it. Got it. I think I know Johnny, he likes to experience everything uh, in that particular culture that he's immersing himself in. So he's, he's dressing the part and he's eating all kinds of adventurous stuff. But I, I, I can empathize with, you know, you uh, being a little bit picky. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes, um, again, with my phobias, I actually become vegetarian when I'm traveling overseas. Um, I remember years ago, I went to Burma, and I'm in a wet market, and there's a little butcher shop. And, you know, it's 100 degrees out, and there's no sanitation. And I see the butchers with their knives just cutting up the meat. And the butchers turn their back, and I see three local stray dogs jump up onto the butcher's counter and start licking up all the meat on the counters. And from on that trip, after that, I only ate vegetable fried <laughs> rice. I'm like, because when you're at the hotel, I mean, that, that raw meat comes in a wheelbarrow in 100-degree heat into the kitchen and they're cooking up that meat. And I'm like, Oh, I'm like, after seeing that, I'm like, you know, a little squeamish and in conjunction with, you know, it's definitely not sanitary with those dogs running around licking up the meat. So again, when I'm in some countries, uh, I might go full vegetarian during that trip to kind of, um, you know, decrease the number of risk variables when I'm eating. Well, my stomach is churning right now at that story. So we're going to take a quick break and uh, let my, my stomach settle a little bit. And when we come back, I'm going to try and pin you down on kind of a, <clears throat> a top five list in your world travels. And we're also going to talk some about your media empire, your books, your <laughs> films, and the podcast. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Jeff Hester from SoCalHiker.net, and when I'm not out backpacking in the mountains or hiking, day hiking out in the Cascades, I'm listening to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Welcome back. So, Gaz, I'm going to try and pin you down, as I promised, on your top five countries. I want you to go in order from number five to number one of the places you have visited. What are your favorites? Well, as I'm sure you know, Doc, this is the impossible travel question that everybody asks, including myself, when I am 
uh, interviewing other people. So I will share with you five awesome places I've traveled to, whether they're truly my top five, that can be debated. So okay. I'll start off with Thailand, my kind of second home away from home. And, you know, I've spent you know, countless months or probably cumulative several couple of years at this point. And I've been coming here since my first visit in 2005. And why do you want to come to Thailand? Well, one, it offers so much. Um, and many people have heard this before. You got the mountains up in the north. You have the unbelievable major um, cosmopolitan city of Bangkok, uh, you know, which offers so much. And then basically the south, you have these islands, which are postcard dreams. So you start off with that. Um, in general, it's, you know, affordable. And finally, there's great infrastructure, meaning whether it's hotels or restaurants or transportation, including airlines, it's really just, it's a great introduction to Southeast Asia and just a great place to, to visit, which offers so much. Okay. So that's, uh, I that's guess, num number five. Okay. Number four, I am going to choose Armenia, which after the U.S. and Thailand is where I've spent the most amount of time in my life. I've been there every year since 2002. Uh, this year might be the exception, unfortunately. Um, I've spent as much as four months at a time there, uh, but I'm back every single year. Um, this country's small, but packs in so much. Mm -hmm. um, great city, Yerevan, the capital. This is a great home base. It is so easy to walk around. Uh, great restaurant and cafe scene. It's a place where you can chill out for a week or even a couple of months. And then you can explore the country from Yerevan or even better in a perfect world, you're renting a car. Um, incredible history, incredible nature, great people, great food, awesome country. Nice. Now, before you get to number three, I have to ask, uh, do, you, do, you, do you speak multiple languages? Um, well, the people who do speak those languages might get mad with me saying I speak them. But <laughs> I will say I can talk in a taxi for 15 minutes with a Thai taxi driver or an Armenian taxi driver. Okay. Very nice. That, that's all you need, right? That gets it done. Yep. Okay. On to number three. Number three, I'll, um, I'll go a little bit off the beaten path. I'm going to say the Federated States of Micronesia. So this is a uh, island nation in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. It's four states or four islands. I only went to one of them. I went to Yap, Y-A-P. And only 17,000 people live in Yap. So you're talking a small town. 
and it is isolated. And what I mean by isolated, I think it's only two flights a week to the outside world. So, you know, you think of, you know, Boston to New York, and there's probably, you know, 40 flights a day on the shuttle. Mm -hmm. There's only two flights a week going to this airport. So it's isolated, it's remote, it's beautiful. A couple of awesome things to do here. One, I'm not a diver, but I do love to snorkel. Some incredible snorkeling and, you know, you're just going out, yeah, and you you know, one day I went snorkeling. I mean, there's not a lot of tourists there, Doc. So <laughs> I go out and it's I had a private trip. So it was fifty bucks for a half day with the pilot, the captain, and the the tour guide. So it's the three of us, and I've got the whole ocean, the whole boat to myself. It's just so beautiful, and you're out there and just enjoying this untouched nature. So Scuba is awesome. Snorkel is awesome. The other thing that's great about Yap is stone money. Um, Yap, a little bit today, but more so in the past, had a currency made out of stones. And when I say stone money, some of the money is 10 feet high. So it's a carved rock, Uh 10 feet high with an open middle, sort of like a donut. So you would be able to drive around the island and go visit the stone money. They're left outside. I even went to a stone money bank, which was just basically an open field with about (laughs) 30 or 50 of these stone pieces uh, lying out in the field. So a unique culture, unique history and, and pretty fascinating seeing the stone money. Their ATMs have to be incredible. Think about the technology <laughs> behind that to drop out a 10 foot, you know, one ton coin. <laughs> I hope you emptied your pockets of money before you went snorkeling. You go straight to the bottom. Yeah. There, there was an additional risk there. <laughs> what does a week in Yap set you back? Uh, tell, well, tell, me in terms of, tell me in terms of dollars, not, not the, the stone money. Uh, well, the, actually, the currency they use there today is the U.S. dollar. Okay. Um, I wish I spent a week. I only spent there four. I only spent four nights there, uh, but I mean, I would have been happy to do a month. Um, it's been a couple years. I'm going to say my hotel was about ninety dollars a night. Um, you know, there's not a lot of hotel. There's only really, I think, about three hotels, give or take. In Yap, there's not a lot of competition. Um, the meals I ate, like I could eat lunch for like five dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, dinners, chicken, sa- chicken sandwiches. It was something like that, or it's probably <laughs> a cheese pizza. Um, and dinner, you know, I ate dinner at the hotel, which was kind of a nice restaurant. I probably spent like twenty bucks on dinner. Um, I told you the snorkel trip was uh, fifty bucks. Um, I took a country tour, uh, which was basically a taxi driver who drove me around for the day. He took me to the Stone Money. He took me to the World War II, uh, like uh, destroyed planes, et cetera. That was a hundred bucks. So it's not cheap, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, it's not, you know, it's not 300 bucks a night in the hotel or 
you know, $200 to go on a snorkel trip. Right. And how do you fly into Yap? I, I imagine you, you have to catch, uh, you have to land somewhere near there and then take a, a smaller flight in. Yeah, it wasn't fun. I flew Chicago to Tokyo, Tokyo to Guam, and then Guam to Yap. Um, this is all on United. United used to be well known uh, for flying in these this area. They're still pretty good, but they used to have like you know really great coverage. Um, I think it was like an hour flight from Guam to Yap. Um, pretty, pretty easy. It, it kind of sucks. These flights are all at bad times. I arrived at like two in the morning and, you know, we're all queuing out on the runway for the one guy stamping the visas. Um, and then someone from the hotel met me, uh, and drove me back to the hotel. The great thing at that point was United flew from Yap to Palau they cancel, they don't do that flight anymore. So I was able to go yap, you know, Guam, yap, Palau and bang those out. Uh Um, I don't think that United flight exists anymore. There might be this airline called Carolina, like a Caroline, a local airline that might fly that route like once a week to Palau, but you would have to double check. By the way, you said uh, Guam, Yap, Palau. That sounded like a, you know, a, a, I don't know, a, a musical group. <laughs> okay, that was number three. Number two. Number two, I am going to say Syria. Okay. Um, first of all, I was very fortunate that I went there in 2009 so that's before the Arab Spring. This is before this brutal, brutal civil war that's taking place now. And again, I, I think I mentioned I went there in 2009 during this big trip around the world, and I added it on at kind of the last minute. And, you know, the only, my, my impression was terrorism and Assad and bad things. And Um, If you've spoken to anybody who's been to Syria, um, while those things might exist, um, Syria in 2009 was this amazing, awesome, welcoming place. I mean, the people are great. This is the heart of civilization. I mean, history goes back so many thousands of years here. There's so much to see, so much to do. Back then it was cheap and affordable, easy to get around. And I am going to, uh, I guess, go back and, and change something. I might be a picky eater, but this food is my favorite food in the world. So the food is absolutely incredible here and also so cheap. I would, you know, you would be able to eat, you know, a tray of pachava for like two bucks or have an awesome chicken shawarma for a dollar. I remember I would, um, I'm up North in Aleppo and I, you know, usually if I find a good restaurant, I'm very boring. I keep on going back to the same place. So I found this great place for chicken shawarma from the restaurant. So I'm, you know, I'm eating my chicken shawarma and he would be like, come on over here. You know, you're like, you know, Yalla, yalla, come over here. 
and you know they have the glass I, I mean this was both awesome and also a little you know disconcerting so he has the glass with all the food underneath the glass like the tabbouleh and the hummus and all these great salads he starts taking the spoon out of the tabbouleh and he just reached over and placed it into my mouth yeah <laughs> the awesome thing was his hospitality and his warmness the bad thing was the spoon was going back into the tabbouleh for the next person he was serving. So, you know, you're just hanging out there, you're eating chicken shawarma, you're being welcomed into this guy's shop. And again, that was my second night. Nice. We had, we had Kufta tonight for dinner. It was, it was oh. awesome. Yeah. Uh, cool. Cool. Very good. Okay. So that brings us to number one. And I saved number one for Myanmar or Burma, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've been here five times and I was actually supposed to be back for sixth time in April that got canceled. I could go there infinity times. Um, you know, fairly big country, extremely diverse with different ethnic groups, different languages and religions. Uh, still, I mean, it's definitely opened up, you know, the first time I went there, there were no ATM machines. Literally to get a SIM card was 2000 US dollars. Um, so things have changed so much now. Now there's ATM cards. Now you get to the airport, you have your choice of three different, you know, cell phone providers. But with all that being said, to me, it's still quite untouched. It's not overwhelmed by tourism. The people are not, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you know, the people are not tired of seeing tourists. There's just, in my view, there's an infinity amount of things to see and do. And two of the most spectacular things in the world are there to see. One in the former capital, Yangon, is the Schwendigen Pagoda. Uh, this temple is covered in gold. It's the, their holiest Buddhist site in the country. And Doc, I am telling you, it's pure magic. You go there before sunset, stay through sunset. You stay to closing till 10 p.m. The crowds start to thin out. And when I say crowds, it's 97% local Burmese people. There's not a ton of tourists. But at the end of the night, the moon's up. The pagoda, I don't know, let's say it's 150 feet high. They have these chimes at the top of the pagoda. So you're sitting there under the stars, the moon. You start hearing the chimes blowing the wind. Uh, it's really thinned out, and it's, it's a must-see, must-do experience uh, when you're in Yangon. The second thing is you have to go to Bagan, which is about an hour flight from Yangon. And Bagan might be my favorite place in the world. You're talking an open plain on the river. There's 2,000 temples that have been built here over the past centuries. And I can spend a month here going to the temples every night for sunset, watching the sun go down, sitting on top of one of the temples. So two amazing places there. Nice. Nice. Interesting. You've been to seven continents and your top five, or at least the five that you shared, three were from Asia and two are from the Middle East. Well, it's, uh, there's Asia, 
there's just so much that it offers. Doc. Yeah. Yep. Nothing from Europe, nothing from North America, not even Antarctica made, made your list. Uh, and, but you know, but you know, the answer, I love all those places. That's you right. only gave me five. Yep. Yep. So let, let's, let's uh, finish off today by talking about your media mogul empire. Uh, I, I noticed that you are, you are also an author. You've written three books. Correct. And what, what are the topics of those books? Okay. So I've done, I've participated in something called a rally and a rally is getting from point A to point B. So in 2010, I bought a car in Budapest, Hungary and with two friends over 17 days, we drove through uh, 11 countries from Budapest to Armenia. This is an organized event called the Caucasian Challenge. It's awesome. It's an incredible amount of fun. And I wrote a book about this journey. So that's book one. I'm going to read that book. I can't believe you're just dropping this on me now. Because <laughs> if I had known about the Caucasian Challenge, the rally across 11 countries in 17 days with two of your buddies, I mean, that's what the podcast episode would have been about today. uh uh-uh. <laughs> well, maybe sometime in the future we can do part two. Nice. Uh, the second book is called uh, Hit the Road India. And this was my second rally. And as you might guess, it takes place in India. And this was from Mumbai to Chennai, which is 2,000 kilometers. The awesome thing about this journey it wasn't in a car. It was in a rickshaw or a tuk-tuk. Oh, so wow. me and my buddy drove this seven-horsepower rickshaw for two weeks, oh. 2,000 kilometers, in this tiny, extremely unsuitable vehicle. Well, wow, that's, you know, just for our, our folks here in the U.S. who may not know their uh... – their metric system. That's like 1200 miles. That's going on a, a seven horsepower vehicle for, for 1200 miles across the U S that's crazy. It, it was. And to put that into context, if you buy a nice, uh, uh, sitting lawnmower driving lawnmower, <laughs> those are 20 or 30 horsepower <laughs> or riding lawnmower. That's wow. Okay. Uh, And then the uh, third book, we spoke about Chernobyl. This is more of a e-book, coffee e-book, meaning there's not a lot of text, but there's like a hundred plus photos Mm. from sleeping overnight in Chernobyl and documenting what I saw. Okay. And how how does one go about purchasing one of these masterpieces? Um, so they are all, you uh, the first two books, 7,000 kilometers to go or hit the road, India are available hard copy or Kindle on Amazon. Um, photos from Chernobyl is available on Amazon as a Kindle as well. Uh, but the cheat to save money for photos from Chernobyl, you can go to globalgas.com and get a free ebook version by giving me your email. Oh, wow. That's cheap. (laughs) (laughs) All right. How about you? Go ahead. And and I'm actually working on my fourth book. Um, 
this has been uh, in the back of my mind for a long time, but it was thank, uh, thanks to COVID, I finally got around to working on my fourth book. And there's a festival in Thailand, in Bangkok, called Wai Kru Sak Yent. It takes place once a year in March. And Sak Yent is an ancient practice in Southeast Asia of these tribal type tattoos. If you've ever seen Angelina Jolie on her back, she has uh, a tattoo on her back of five rows. And this is a very well-known Sakyant tattoo. Okay. The Sakyant tattoos give the owner a magical power. Meaning, if you get, and there's hundreds or thousands of these different tattoos. If you get one of these Sakyants, it might give you good luck and you're impervious to bullet wounds. In conjunction with that, you also have to give up something. So you have to, for instance, give up swearing and gambling. So if you give up these two things, get the tattoo blessed, then you'll get the magical powers. At this temple called Wat Bang Pra, 10,000 people a year gather for this festival. Hundreds of them get these magical tattoos from monks who are giving them throughout the day, throughout the night, throughout the morning. And then that's on Friday, Saturday morning, 10,000 people gather in this open area in front of this stage. On the stage are Buddhist monks praying and chanting. Doc, you have to see it to believe it. The people become possessed take the form of an animal or of a different person, and they go into this crazy trance as they run through the people, stepping on them, hitting them, as they rush the stage, as the magical power goes into the Sakyan tattoos and charges them with the special powers. So my fourth book is I've been to this festival seven years. I've taken thousands of photos of this event and this will be my next book coming out wow love to see that sounds like a, a pretty wild mosh pit it, yeah it, it is crazy i mean i've seen people get absolutely knocked out because these guys when they get possessed are running full steam yeah and if you don't if you're not careful and you have your back turned they will take you out and lay you out Nice. Hey, um, can you vouch for me later when my wife catches me looking on the computer at Angelina Jolie's back? And I could just say, it, you know, Gaz told me to look at this Sock Yent tattoo. I got your back, Doc. All right. Thank back. you. Thank you. Hey, let's transition to uh, your films. Tell us about uh, the, the two films that you've been part of. Yeah. So the two films have to do with the rallies I participated in. Okay. So when I drove from Mumbai to Chennai in India, um, I drove the rickshaw with my friend, but I also brought a two-person film crew who documented the event and we turned it into an 80-minute film. The four of us reunited once again, but this time in Cambodia, where we drove a Cambodian tuk-tuk for two weeks in another rally uh, hosted by a company called Large Minority. And again, we created another full-length documentary of this event. 
Okay. Very good. And that brings us to your podcast, Counting Countries. Yeah. So podcast, I think it's four or five years now. So it's been going on for a while. And right now it's a monthly publication of a very, very long format interview. I just interviewed an extremely well-known traveler last night. His name is Graham Hughes. We went on for three hours and I had to cut the interview short because I still had literally 30 questions left on my list. But Doc, as we were talking about earlier, there's a distinct community of people traveling to every country in the world. About Only about 200 people have accomplished this goal. You can argue that these people are the most traveled people in the world who've ever lived. And my podcast is interviewing these people and learning about their fascinating, unique journeys to every country in the world. And, you know, I haven't talked to a lot of podcasters before, so I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast just uh, by the seat of my pants and just doing what feels right. I'd love to hear what your technique is. You have a, a list of questions, pre-planned questions. How much research do you do ahead of time? Um, how does that work for you? Yeah, so I do have a template of questions that I draw from, but you know, I think we would both agree research is really important. Um, so, uh, yeah, and some people that's easier said than done because mm -hmm. some of the people I am interviewing don't have any internet presence at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but someone like Graham Hughes, who I spoke to last night, I mean, you know, he, he has a TV show, he has tons of videos, he has books, he has blogs. So someone like him, it's, uh, you know, just a factor of trying to get through all the information and drawing out the questions that you want to ask them. I mean, someone like Graham, who's been interviewed, you know, a hundred or 500 times. The other thing I'm somewhat uh, cognizant of, I don't want to ask him the same questions that he's been asked a thousand times as well. Uh, so that goes into it. So, yep, research, uh, start off with the template, customize the template based upon the research that you did. Um, and like you did, you want to get your guests comfortable uh, and get them to open up and talk as much as possible and get them to share something they haven't shared with uh, anybody before. Nice. Before we started recording tonight, you did a, a nice little promo for, for my podcast. I'm going to do a promo for your podcast right now. I'm going to, I'll, uh, I'll edit it out and I'll send it to you separately, but uh, here goes. You ready? I am ready. This is doc. And when I am not hosting the John freaking mirror pod, I'm listening to counting countries with gas. There you go. I like it. I will send me, uh, send me, send me that file, my friend. Yeah, I will. I'll put it to some nice uh, light music and, and you can use it uh, whenever you want. Thank you, buddy. Yep, thank you. All right. So, hey, that brings us to the pro tip insight of the week. What do you have for us, Gaz? Well, uh, now I'm, I'm struggling. Do I give you one or two tips? Do I get to cheat? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one tip, and this is based upon something that we spoke about earlier, and it was me coming to Thailand and volunteering. So – I think so many of us are striving for genuine trips and genuine interactions during our travels. 
And that can be uh, challenging, that can be difficult. And sometimes it's great to have a mechanism which forces you into a genuine experience, which that sounds a little non-genuine, but I think it's very genuine. So what I'm getting at is I have volunteered a number of times over the years, and this opens up an entirely different new window into learning about the place that you're visiting. So I highly encourage people, I know it's not possible for many to do a month or two months or three months. If you can, try a week. If not, even try a day, and that will give you some different insights during your travels. Very nice. Authentic experiences. All right, so there you have it. That's it. Episode 29 is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Gaz. I want to thank him for joining us this week. Gaz, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Yeah, Doc, it's pretty easy. Just, I mean, I would start off with Google and type in Global Gaz, G-A-Z. You'll see the blog, the Facebook, the Instagram, the YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. Nice. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, take just a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. That's a wrap from the John Freakin' Muir studio. Any final thoughts, Gaz? Uh, Doc, just want to thank you for your time. I want to thank Johnny Blair for the introduction and uh, look forward to talking to you on some other occasion. Yeah, let's do this again. Awesome. Okay, thank you for tuning in. And always remember, the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't care if you have to be getting a bucket and be hauled up by a winch to talk to a national security director named Mike. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. want to succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest tune in to west marines life on the water presented by costa custom boats every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv you'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing but as i've learned no matter where i've been whitetails can be damn tricky Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.